We're reading from 1 Corinthians 1, 1 to 9. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sothenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word. Our simple prayer this morning, as we come to it, you would increase our faith. You would strengthen it. You'd help us to really, truly believe in our heart, in our soul, in every fiber of our being that you are the chain-breaking God. You would help us to truly believe what you say about us is true. Would you do that this morning in your people? In Jesus' precious name, amen. Uh, someone before the service reminded me that today at 11 o'clock, at 11 o'clock is the World Cup final. And I responded, so that means I got to about 12.30 before anything interesting happens, right? Because uh, not a huge soccer guy, but for the past 20 or so years, I have been involved in, in coaching numerous sports. Uh, I've coached very, very little basketball, I think one game, Coached lots of baseball, little league, t-ball, my son's travel team been involved in helping coach those. Before that, coached for four years diving and also three years of water polo. Never played a game of water polo in my life, but I've coached three years of water polo. It's interesting, at every level in every sport, whether it's young kids all the way up to high school students... I've run into two extreme type of attitudes. Thankfully, most kids don't fall into those extremes. There's kind of a bell curve, and most are are right in the middle. But I've seen my fair share of kids who are way, way overconfident in their abilities and skills. It's really frustrating to be out on a baseball field with a seven-year-old, and you're trying to teach him how to catch a ball, and you say, okay, fingers up, you know, keep your elbow in here. And he says, no, I think my way is better. I used to try to reason with seven-year-olds and say, now I just back up and throw the ball as hard as I can at their face, and (laughs) when they catch one, I say, how's your way working out for you now? (laughs) I'm joking. (laughs) On the other extreme are those kids that have no confidence in their abilities at all, and you can see them out on the baseball field. They're the ones that are thinking, please don't hit the ball in my direction. They step up to the plate, and, and they're terrified. And you work with them, and you try to coach them along, and you try to encourage them and you know, talk about the things that they can do and how to get better. And I gave up on that, too. Now I just step back and throw the ball at their face really hard. And when they do catch it, I say, see, you can do it. I'm kidding. Um, you see extremes. 
I'm sure teachers, you see that in the classroom. Professors, you see that in the classroom. You know what? We see it in the Christian walk, too. There's those extremes of how we, we view our, our Christian life. Uh, there's some who would fall into the, the category, the camp. Uh, they have a, a, a worm theology. That's actually a phrase that's used sometimes, worm theology. It's taken from that great hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? You know, in, in some quarters of the Christian community, they want to so highlight grace that they emphasize sin over and over and again. And every discussion comes back to sin and how horrible we are. Another example of it comes from one of my favorite hymns, actually. It goes by a few different titles, uh, Give Me Christ or Else I Die. The other title is Gracious Lord, Incline Thine Ear. It's a great hymn until the hymn writer gets to the part where he says, I'm all unholy and unclean, nothing else but sin. And now, we can make room for poetic license, right? Singers, songwriters, artists, poets, they can get flowery with the language, but if we take that as a literal statement of the Christian, it's an unhealthy extreme. On, on the flip side of that, there's some that want to so emphasize the victorious kind of Christian life that they act and believe that they have nothing more to learn, no more progress to make, no more need for further repentance and growth. And that is also an unhealthy, I think, extreme. It's not just two different kind of wings of Christianity that can fall into those camps. I can in my own life. At certain times, I can feel and even think that I have nothing but sin, nothing but weakness and poverty. At other times, I can honestly get pretty arrogant about my spiritual life and feel like I've arrived. That can happen on the same day, right? Both extremes, both errors are addressed by looking at how Scripture uses one key word to describe us. One key word, I think, addresses both extremes. Now, I say one key word, but I think it's actually, it's one root word that gets used in three different ways, essentially. So in your Bibles, you'll see the word holy. Sometimes you'll see the word sanctified or saint. These three words are all coming from the same root and, in essence, mean the same thing. Sometimes it's used as an adjective, a holy thing, holy God, holy temple. Sometimes it's used as a verb, made holy or sanctified. Sometimes it can be used as a noun, holiness, or a holy people. That's what we're called, a holy people. The passage that was read, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9, in verse 2, you see these words being used. The Apostle Paul says that you have been sanctified, in other words, made holy in Christ Jesus, and you're called to be the holy people of God. 
If you're using a different version, maybe the ESV or the older NIV even, I think, it doesn't say the holy people of God, it says saints. You've been called to be saints and you've been sainted, sanctified, set apart, made holy already. This morning, I just want us to understand to know and to feel the joy of being one of God's saints and at the same time to feel the weight of this high calling that we have to be saints, to be, to live as God's holy people. A lot of times when we're here on a Sunday morning, we're diving deep into one specific passage and we're rooting through it and and pulling out all the nuggets from one passage. We're not going to do that this morning. We'll look a little bit more at 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9, but we're kind of going to go all through the New Testament and see lots of things that the scriptures tell us about being saints and about that call to be saints. Scripture has a lot to say about it. This morning we're going to talk about three paradoxes. When you take all the New Testament says about about being a saint, there's these three sets of tensions, three truths, actually it would be six truths, that are kind of held in tension. First, saints are common, but special. They're common, but special. It's easy to hold one of those things as true. It's more difficult, but more correct to hold both of them. Again, it's easy to hold one and, and, and elevate that as the truth. We have to hold on to both. I think in our common thinking language, kind of person on the street way of thinking, saints are these very special people. People who've gone through a rigorous process of being canonized and deemed saints officially by the church. There is a process in the Catholic Church of being deemed a saint, being canonized. It was formalized in the 10th century, and since then, approximately 10,000 people in the history of the church have been deemed saints. So 10,000 years, I'm sorry, 10,000 people over the past 1,000 years, you're talking about 10 people per year get dubbed saints. The process is, is rigorous in this wing of the church. First, a case is opened. Someone nominates a a potential saint, and they become a technically servant of God. And then people begin to pour through their writings, official and unofficial writings, to see if what they held to be true, what they believed, what they taught, is actually orthodox, good teaching, Uh, They pour through their life to see if they lived a life of virtue, and if it's confirmed that they lived a life of virtue, of heroic virtue, and they were orthodox, then they can become venerated. They can become venerated. They become the venerable bede, or the venerable so-and-so. Still not a saint, though. To be a saint, there has to be, the next step is being blessed or beautified. To get to that step, there has to be at least one miracle that has been performed in your name. 
people have prayed to you. You're dead at this point, by the way. Um, And some miracle has been performed in your name. If that has been proven, then you become blessed so-and-so. The final step is you need one more miracle, at least 10 years after the process has started. And if all that happens, then you become a saint. That's probably what most people think when they hear the word saint. Either that or a football team. But we're in church, so we'll go with that. People who are on icons, who have churches named after them. Saint Augustine, Saint so-and-so. It's a very special thing to be called a saint in that way. But I don't think that's how the Bible uses the term. The New Testament uses the term saint to describe all believers. All of us. All of us common, everyday, ordinary, run-of-the-mill believers. All of us who lose our temper, all of us who sometimes cuss when we hit our thumb with a hammer, who lose patience with our kids, who aren't as obedient as children as we ought to be, who struggle with sins of lust or greed or jealousy, that's us, that's you, and we're described over and over and over again as saints. Paul begins his letter to the Ephesians. He says, to the saints in Ephesus. He begins his letter to the church at Philippi, to the saints in Jesus Christ in Philippi. He begins his letter to the church at Colossae, to the saints. He's not singling out special people in the church. He's talking to the church entire. Everyone gathered. You are the saints. Now maybe you're thinking, okay, well if everyone's a saint, then it's not really that special. It's common, but not special. Again, that's kind of a typical way of thinking, right? If a metal is very typical, very common, we don't think of it as special. Tin, aluminum, not that special. Or if a bird is common, the robin. We don't get all excited about seeing a robin. It's common. Let me give you a different way of thinking. Wives are common. There's probably a hundred or so of them in this room. But my wife is special to me. It's the way it should be. We're not just the saints. It shows up that way sometimes in Scripture, but a lot of times it shows up as His saints, His holy people. There's a possessiveness to that. We belong to God. We've been set apart by God and for God. We're special To him, yes, it's common. There's a lot of us. But we're special to him. We're his saints. His saints. When we hear the word holy, I think more often than not, we think in terms of moral purity, uprightness, righteousness, and it certainly does mean that. But at its root, it means something that is set apart. So, 
all throughout Scripture, you can run into things like holy incense. Incense has no moral qualities about it. I tend to think it's kind of evil, but in reality, it has no moral qualities about it. But it's holy because it was to be used in the temple. Oil. Holy oil. Holy anointing oil. There was nothing morally more pure about this oil, it was just set apart for use by God. Holy tongs that were used on the altar, holy garments that Aaron would wear, not jeans with holes in them, garments that were set apart for service to God. When we are called saints, the holy people of God It's reminding us that we have been set apart by God, for God, and his purposes. As I was thinking about this this week, I was convicted about how often I speak of my dreams, my visions, my plans, my goals, neglecting to consider God's plans for my life. God's dreams, God's goals and purposes. I've been set apart for him. Growing up, my parents would ask me all the time. It got frustrating. Have you prayed about that? Have you asked God about that? Have you sought God's will about your summer job, about your major? And I will confess, I do not ask my children that same question nearly enough. You can go overboard with it. but we're set apart for God. This week I was talking to someone in the church and they were reminiscing about how older generations used to talk about their plans and then add the phrase, the Lord willing. Are you going to the picnic in a couple weeks? I am, Lord willing. Certainly that can just become an empty habit, but it expresses something important. It expresses something about not only the sovereignty of God, but our submission to it. I have plans to go to the picnic. I have plans for this major. I have plans for this part of my life. Lord willing, I submit to his plans for my life. So high school senior, you just graduated and people ask you, what are you going to do in college? You don't have to say it every time. But maybe think it. I'm going to be a sociology major, Lord willing. Just graduated from college. What are you going to go do with your life? You know what? I think I'm going into business. I'm going to start a company, Lord willing. I submit my plans to him. I have been sanctified, set apart for him. I laid at his feet. That's the first tension or paradox. Saints are common. There's lots of them, but we're special. We've been set apart for God. The second paradox is that saints are already holy, but not yet holy. There is about 8,000 very special people scattered across the country, even scattered across the world, and they're coming to Bloomington in a couple weeks. They're coming to our wonderful town, to our campus. They are freshmen. 
They've graduated from their high school. They've paid their deposits. They've been accepted. They've picked their classes. They are IU students. And they're coming. (laughs) They haven't sat in a classroom yet. Uh, They haven't participated in those discussions yet. They haven't sat in the student section at an IU basketball game. There's parts of being a student that they haven't experienced yet, but they are students. We are saints. We are the holy ones of God. But there's still parts of that that we haven't experienced in full yet. Again, remember, we skimmed through a few verses in where Paul addresses us all as saints. If he was writing a letter to us, he would address us as the saints in Bloomington. We're saints. He also reminds us in parts of Scripture that we are sanctified. We have been made holy. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, to those who are sanctified... If you know anything about the church at Corinth, that is a shocking statement. They were rife with sin and division and gross immorality, and yet he still addresses them all as saints, as the ones who are sanctified. 1 Corinthians 6.11, he says, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Colossians 3, Paul calls us the holy people of God. We've already become that. Yes, that's true positionally. We are now set apart. But it goes beyond just being set apart. There is something different about us morally. We'll say it that way. We now have become the righteousness of God. We've made a clean break. Like those students who are coming here, they've broken from their high school. They can't go and sit on high school classes anymore. They graduated. There's a definitive break, and we've experienced that. We ran out of the tomb. We are no longer captive to sin. It's not our master. We've been liberated. We don't belong to the kingdom of darkness anymore. Something definitive has happened already, and we've been made holy. But we haven't yet fully experienced all that that can and should mean. We're still sinners. The Apostle John says if we deny that we have sin, we make God out to be a liar, and the truth is not in us. The Apostle Paul, Saint Paul, said here is a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Not I was the worst, I am. St. Paul still understood that he was a sinner and had the need to grow, to progress in holiness. That's why all throughout Scripture, along these statements about already being sanctified and already being made saints, you see calls, demands even, to live a holy life, to put to death 
sin, to clothe yourselves in righteousness. It's not only a thing that has been accomplished and done. It's a truth that we are to be growing in. Yes, we are saints, but we need the continued progressive work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to become what we are. Pursuing holiness is a demand upon our life. It's a call upon us. It's a call to joy. And it's one that we have to take up in faith. Not like Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin had a plan to improve himself morally. And he made a list of the vices in his life and set out to tackle them one by one. Okay, I'm a little bit too greedy. I'm going to work on that. And then when I've gotten over greed, I'm going to work on my anger or my stupidity for flying kites and storms. It was all about self-improvement, and that is not what Scripture is calling us to. It is an act of faith, believing, trusting that what God has said about us is true, that we've been freed, that, that we've been given the power through the Spirit to grow in holiness. It's about trusting that what God has declared is true and about leaning in and living in light of that, that truth that we are saints. It's not by doing it yourself, but by relying on God's work that's already been done and his power that is at work in us through his spirit. That's the second tension, the paradox there, that we already are holy but not yet holy. And the third, saints are weak, but at the same time, saints are incredibly powerful. When you read through the New Testament, you get a very clear picture of the weakness of the saints. Some saints, saints are, are weak in their conscien consciences, their consciences are, are easily wounded. They see temptation hiding around every corner. They're easily offended. Paul acknowledges that weakness. Other saints are, are weak because they're being persecuted. They've been physically beaten or imprisoned. Some are weak socially and economically because their stuff has been plundered because they've been kicked out of trade guilds, because they won't worship to Caesar anymore. Some saints still struggle with things like sickness and depression. I remember very clearly inviting one of my high school friends, he was a, another diver in the high school diving team, to church. I don't know why he didn't come to church with me on Sunday morning. He came on a Wednesday night, which was my church's prayer meeting. And we sat there through the service, and there was a short sermon and a lot of time spent in prayer and lots of prayer requests, lots of prayer requests. And after the service, he said to me, I do not know about this Christian thing. You guys have a lot of problems. <laughs> and he's right. Scripture does not hide the fact that 
the saints still struggle with weaknesses. And yet, they're powerful. They're powerful to to persevere when the weight of the Roman Empire is coming down on them. Uh, They're powerful to not just persevere in a grit your teeth and endure it kind of way. The saints can overcome. Overcome the sin that they've struggled with for decades. Overcome temptation. Overcome powers and principalities and empires. They do that not because of their physical prowess, their strength, their armies. They do it through the power that resides in them, the Spirit. They do it through things like prayer. I love the book of Revelation. I love it. One of my favorite images comes from Revelation chapter 8. The prayers of the saints go up to heaven. And the angel collects the prayers of the saints, the smoke that rises from them, and puts them in a censer. And then hurls it back down to earth. And there's earthquakes and lightnings. It's powerful. It's like the prayers of the saints return to earth like bombs accomplishing God's purposes. They're powerful. It's not, again, because we're strong and we're powerful. It's because we've been made holy by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Saints, don't look to yourself and your inner resources for this power. Look to God who supplies it. Look to the Spirit that resides in you. Look to the community that surrounds you. The Holy Spirit works, yes, by speaking in our ear. That voice in my ear often sounds like John or Bob or my friend Aaron or my wife Lynn. In community, the Spirit works and shapes us and gives us power to be the saints that we've been called to be. I don't know if you've been down the staff hallway recently. Things have shuffled a bit. I'm now in a big boy office. (laughs) I sit at what used to be Bob's desk. And people walk by and they say, oh, do you feel important now? Do you feel like you got a promotion? And the answer is honestly, no. I feel like a poser. (laughs) Now, I'm not giving it back, but... (laughs) have had that experience before. I've heard it called imposter's syndrome. New professors, new CEOs, they're thinking, someone's going to find me out sometime here. Just waiting for that shoe to drop. If I'm honest, when I read that I'm a saint, I'm a poser. Not me. I'm weak. I struggle. My faith fails. 
That's why I prayed at the beginning that we'd have faith to believe what God says about us is true. We don't believe that. We're not going to act like it. So I pray that, well, we'd get over ourselves. That we'd trust that when God says we're righteous, holy saints, we'd be thankful. Uh, We'd be overwhelmed with the privilege and honored by the high call that we now have to live as his saints. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it challenges us, how it challenges our very perceptions of, of who we are. Who are we? We're your holy people. We're your saints. We're loved by you. You've called us and set us apart to bear your name, to represent you to this dying world, to shine lights, to bring you glory, and to bask in your love for us. We pray that we would have the faith to do that well. In Jesus' precious name, amen.